This is Womb, the podcast that celebrates the power of rebirth. I'm your host, Nova Cobbin, and on this show, we'll hear from amazing women who dared to rediscover who they are. Women who reignited long-lost passions, took bold leaps of faith, and reimagined their futures in ways they never thought possible. Each week, we'll be inspired by the stories of strength, courage, and resilience. Stories that remind us it's never too late to start anew. There are always second chances, new beginnings, and opportunities for rebirth. So join us as we explore the journeys of phenomenal women who reinvented themselves and created the lives they've always dreamed of. Welcome to Womb Rebirth. Let's go. Hello, and welcome to today's episode. I am here with Fenella Hemus today, and I'm going to give you an introduction to Fenella. Fenella has a phenomenal story. I'm really excited about getting into it. Fenella has been in the business of transformation for over 25 years, supporting people of all ages and walks of life to grow and thrive. Her varied background spans running an adventure playground, training development and delivery, health coaching and traveling, giving her a breadth of skills and life experiences to draw on. She now runs internationally certified neuro-linguistic programming, timeline therapy and hypnotherapy training for coaches and business leaders who are dedicated to creating positive change in the world. With these mindset and behavior change tools, they can achieve profound and long-lasting results for themselves and anyone that they work with. Through one-to-one breakthrough and performance coaching, Fenella enables ambitious, overwhelmed women and men to clear the blocks that stop, stop them achieving greater success on their own terms, so they become limitless in their thinking and unstoppable in their mission. Fenella wholeheartedly believes that everyone is magnificent and has the ability to achieve the exceptional in life. What a lovely introduction, Fenella. I can't wait to talk to you more about all of those things. So we are here obviously to talk about your rebirth story. And I know that you have some really key and important things in your story that I really want the listeners to hear about. But where should we start? Where is the place where you feel your first rebirth? Because often we go through many of them. But where did the first sort of big significant change happen for you? I think the first big significant change happened um, when I had several people, my family died. So um, my little brother, first of all, at the age of 33, died from bowel cancer. And then my other brother died a year and a half or just, I know, just over a year later. Um, and he had a motorbike accident and um, that was a period of you know seeing someone in ICU which was uh, quite an experience and then um, my dad died three months later from cancer which I didn't know about because he never told me and he wasn't with my mum and I'm sure I've not blocked it out because I never he never told me. Wow and did you ever discover why he didn't tell you? Well, my mum just can't believe that he he didn't tell me because um, there's a whole bit of a hoo-ha around my mum and his ex-wife as well. And that was not very nice at the time around my little brother dying. Yeah, I, I never really asked. I I didn't talk about it because I it, it wasn't something that was in my mind. And then we happened to have a conversation with my mum several years later and she's like, you didn't know about it? And I said, no. And she said, I, she never told me about it. She knew, even though they weren't together. It was still friendly. So that was all. There's been a few bizarre things, bizarre things which don't really fit. But for me, 
that's not important ultimately. I mean, that's profound, isn't it? Having three deaths in your family, your close family, yeah. in a very short period of time. I mean, how did that affect you? What was going on for you? I think I'm like my mum. <laughs> so at the time I was supporting my mum after my little brother died because my mum looked after him. They kind of, um, she built, she they built bridges again at the end because they'd been estranged. Um, there's all like stuff that's gone well before that. So my brother was in a hospice for about six months, um, I think, on and off. And she spent all her time there as well with him. So I think a lot of it was around me thinking about my mum. I was living, I didn't live near them. I live, you know, on the my mum, they live in Surrey. I live down in Bristol. With my brother, it was just the period of time, you know, we knew he was dying. I spent time with him. Um, and then, yeah, when my other brother died, that was just an utter and total shock. That was just like drop everything and go and go and be with him in the hospital and be with my mum. So I think a lot of it was really. And then and then my dad afterwards. Well, that that was the thing that actually was a bit of a um, physical. I had a physical response to that. So prior to that, I kind of just put a brave face on it. I focused on what I had to do. I was working in the playground. I think, you know, probably a lot of time I was in a bit of shock, but didn't really, because I didn't really address anything. I was just like, right, got to carry on, got to keep going. Then when my dad died, I remember um, being at someone's house on Christmas Eve or something. And and then, um, well, no, actually it was before my dad died. I, I got up and I couldn't straight stand up. My back was totally bent. And I was like, I don't know what's going on here. I don't know what's going on. Really, I just couldn't couldn't stand up. And then I kind of realised, I was like, no, this is going to be okay. This is just a stress response. This is like everything has suddenly gone. Stop it for now. And then, yeah, my dad died a few weeks later. So it was just shock, shock. Um, I had some counselling, but it didn't really do anything for me. And because of, um, I think, a lot of the way that I have, the views I have on the world, um, I I thought I worked through it. I thought I worked through it. Mm-hmm. So then, th- then the actual um, the the indicator that I didn't was some months later. I can't remember how long after it was, and I was working in particularly difficult conditions in the playground, and I had a team to support, and I had no support myself. We were having to walk, work with our doors locked some of the time. It was that that kind of like uh, challenging with some of the young people. But there was one day that. Um, I was working and I was kind of near the gate and this young woman came in um, about 16 years old and she just started Mm. having a go at me um, as they did sometimes. And basically I just lost it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I, I mean, I could tell you what I said was involved swear words. I just told her where to go in no uncertain terms. And then I just thought time to leave, time to leave. I can't do this anymore. I'm obviously carrying far too much. So yeah, that was a, a real wake-up moment that was. I just never lost it like that with a young person. Wow. Okay. So you've had you've had this sort of underlying shock that's not been dealt with, the underlying grief that's not been dealt with, and then as happens, it kind of comes out in your body. It comes out in shock moments where you do something out of character. So these things have been happening, and you've suddenly had this realization that okay all of this stuff that's gone on, maybe there is something that I need to deal with or there's something that I need to change in order to be able to deal with that or in order for that to be able to be worked through. Mm. So as a result then, what did you decide? You knew you, knew you needed a change, but what was what kind of happened after that? 
well, I left the playground. I basically handed my notice in and I just thought, well, I'm going, I'm not, I'm going to, I'm not going to do anything really. I'm just going to take a little bit of time. And then a, and then a part-time job came up in, in doing something. Well, it was like heading up an organization or something because I was already trained. I think I was already training at the time. Um, and then just as an interim to think about, okay, what next? Then after a period of time, I was just like, actually, I'm going to go try. I'm going to leave. I'm just going to go abroad. And my mum kind of said, it's like me escaping. <laughs> and um, it was because, you know, I had the opportunity. I got some money from my brother's death. Um, his life was insured. And, and my dad signed, gave the money that went to him. He gave it to me. So I had a, I had an inheritance and I just thought, well, I just want to change. I just want a total change of scenery. I traveled before. I somehow had I had this I um I had this idea in my mind that I wanted to learn a language and I think I'd started learning Spanish and I thought well it's taking too long over here why not go abroad and learn Spanish instead so it was really a kind of a total break and an escape from um yeah the the world that I was living in now interestingly a few people said to me you know because of where I chose to go there were people who you know said that I was because my mum's lost both her sons. Mm -hmm. And um, that I was pretty selfish deciding to go to South America. The thing about my mum is my mum has always believed that we have to live our own lives. And she's always been very supportive of me. And she knows what I'm like. I mean, I travelled traveled in Australia when I was a lot younger and I travelled a lot by myself. I hitched and things. And she knows that I can look, I can look after myself. And, and yeah, I just decided I wanted to go. Or I needed to go away. And she understood that as well. So I, I'm very fortunate to have a. I'm kind of like her. I, I I say she's my role model because, uh, yeah, it's that um, that way of um, being accepting and allowing people to do to 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 live their lives, and I I really respect her for that. Yeah, I think that's one of the truest forms of love. Really, is kind of recognizing what people need and and allowing them to have that without the guilt or or anything that accompanies that. So you go to South America. Did you pick that? simply because you knew that you could kind of immerse yourself in the language or was there something else that drew you to that? Well, it was quite a long way away. <laughs> it was a long way away. It was adventure, you know, for me also, it was being able to see um, other cultures, really different cultures, because a part of it was Spanish in Spain is really fast. And I, I wasn't really attracted to the Spanish, uh, the, the Spanish in Spain. I liked the South American sounding Spanish as well so um I also going to going abroad to learn a language I could go to Cuba it was a way of being able to see Cuba mm -hmm. um because at that time you couldn't travel without an educational visa or you just had to go to the tourist areas and I didn't want to do that mm -hmm. so I went to uh, study Spanish in Santiago de Cuba so in the south of Cuba because again for me it was seeing that real Cuba I love heat I loved all of you know the kind of the um the energy and the vitality as well and it was like salsa and you know all of that sort of stuff so what were your hopes for that journey what did you hope it was going to do for you I didn't have any seriously this is I'm very I'm I've, I think I'm a person who very much lives in the present mm -hmm. and so I I just thought I want to go away and explore unconsciously there was a it was going to be a way of of again, focusing probably on other people and other things mm -hmm. as a way of 
healing myself if you if you see what I mean rather than going inside and delving deeply and you know for the grieving thing for me it's uh you know what I also believed is when I was traveling that they were all my brothers and my dad were with me I did feel like I have a guardian I, I have some kind of guardians who were just there and I think of them a lot as well when I was traveling so yes that was that was the way I approached it <laughs> I think that's I think that's lovely that because I think having that strength that comes from just knowing whichever avenue it comes from, whether it's kind of a person that you see every day or somebody who's kind of in your memory that you're bringing with you or that is a spirit guide or somebody who's alongside you just allows you to feel a little bit more kind of like, okay, I'm not just doing this for me. I'm actually doing this for like all of us to figure out something bigger than myself. And and actually you've just, you just, uh, hit the nail on the head there is <clears throat> at one point they died and after you know that period before I decided to go traveling I am um, and I'd had counseling and I went to counseling and I did the crying through it and and letting all of that out and then I thought this isn't this isn't what I need and then I, I also thought you know I have a choice I can either let myself fall apart or I can do live the life that my brothers didn't have and that is actually what I decided to do is that I was going to see the places my little brother did never saw. And I'm and in sort of the my brother, my other brother, the older one, um, who who had the most bike accident, he was always really into personal development. He was always into really into the mindset and into to, um, to to developing himself. And I thought, well, maybe I can do that. You know, this this I can take him along with me and have that mindset, too, as well with him. And then my dad was just my dad. He was there because my dad's all my dad always supported me, always. I love that. And I, I think with all of these stories that we've been telling, there's kind of a common theme, which is out of any kind of death, there is always a potential for new life. And whether that's a kind of metaphorical new life, as in you are being reborn or you you are just opening your eyes to a different kind of life, you're expanding in some way, or whether it's a death of your um, identity, you know, you're previous self has died and so now you're coming into a new version of yourself however that looks there's always that underlying cycle which out of death comes a birth and when we're in life that's kind of a choice I think because we can also die a slow death Um, and when people choose to see it as okay this is an opportunity for me to discover something new or, or something like that happens then actually it can be the adventure of a lifetime and so you've gone on this adventure of a lifetime. And what happens next when you're there? What what are the kind of stories that you discover about yourself and the world around you? Well, I discovered just how tough I am, mm-hmm. <laughs> just how brave or courageous I am. I had a few near misses. I had some really incredible, you know, I met some absolutely incredible people. I did have adventures and I did put myself in positions where things could have gone wrong but for me it's like you don't know until you do you know you don't know what you don't know and on when you're traveling sometimes when you meet you know I like want to meet the locals I want to kind of immerse myself so I can really understand about people who you know people who live there and I do travel quite did travel quite slowly I that's my my um, preferred way of doing it um Yes, I did put myself in some places which were were quite dangerous. Um, but I do also have a belief that 95% or more of people are essentially good people. 
And if I go around with the energy that I'm believing that people have not going to, you know, that the people are good, then I'm going to mostly get that. That's not to say I always got that. But my experience is that, yeah, in Colombia, where I got held up on a beach, at, um, I got, yeah, my two lads who were trying to get my bag from me. And I knew that I'd be okay. And the beach vendor came and saved me. So that was uh, an experience. That was a pretty scary experience. I mean, I was mm -hmm. in shock that night. So as I said, we've had, I've had a few adventures, but learning from people's, other people's lives, that's the key thing for me about traveling is understanding how other people see the world. And, and just learning that, I'm, I'm, I just met some incredible people who taught me. So to, it, it had a similar viewpoint to me or thought about just, they just thought about things in a different way that made me realize that, you know, actually what we do over in the West isn't necessarily the right way of doing things. I mean, I never, never generally thought that, but I had the experience in being in South America of different attitudes, different ways of approaching life, if you like, and also living with very little, yeah. you know, actually I, I spent in, in the whole, I was in South America twice. So eight months first time and a year the next time and I lived out of a backpack <laughs> and I've now got loads of stuff all around me again <laughs> but you know yeah. you can live with so little um and and for me again the second time when I went and I worked with street kids how much love there is with children who have so little you know what we compare in the west it didn't take things for granted and they were just really open and affectionate and they were just incredible. They really were incredible. Now tell us more about this because I, I I was really excited to hear this part of your story. So you work with street kids. Tell us how that kind of came about and, and what that looked like. So um, this was the second time I went first. I mean, first time I went to South America, I, I went straight from Cuba to Venezuela, which was um, at the time of Chavez, into Colombia. Everyone said, don't go to Colombia. The government says, don't go to Colombia. I went to Colombia because I wanted to go there. It's the most amazing country in the world. It's my, like my second home. So I decided when I went back the second time, I'd go up from the other end and I'd go to Colombia. So I made my way to Colombia again. And at that time I thought, yes, because I knew about, I'd read lots about, uh, about street children over the years. So I was in Cali, which is my favorite city. Um, and it, that didn't have, you know, if you go to um, Cartagena or you go to Bogota, you can work with street kids. That's all organized. But I was like, no, I want to work with, I want to find a way of working with the street kids or the children who, who don't have very much. So the first part started off with um, finding out for someone in the hostel, um, connecting with this woman who actually worked with the children who had lived on the dump. So they had to move them in from the, the city dump because the city, they, you know, the kids who live on uh, pick out all the rubbish mm -hmm. um, and the families live actually on the city dump, which threatened to, to clog the city. So they put them in houses and I worked with them there and I, I did some girls work. So it was very interesting there working with girls who were, this is slightly different, but it's related, um, girls who were at risk of sexual abuse. And, and so we did some work with them around that. And then somehow I chatted to someone and they said, oh, yeah, well, there's a school in a place called La Oya which is the saucepan, which is essentially the toughest part of Carly. And seriously, you can see some stuff going on there. And I had to get escorted in and out because I'm a gringa. 
because mm-hmm. they were cooking up um, what they call basura out in the street outside is like the cooking up of stuff after cocaine has been um it's whatever's left after they've made cocaine um and so it was pretty you know and sniffing glue because all the um places down the road were where they sold vinyl flooring and stuff so I'd go into this place every day and there were all of these there were several about I don't know 30 plus children that would go there and live there so some of them were living in La Oya in in in, you know they have to come in and out every day and then there were other children who have been off on the streets and they were living there permanently and what I was doing is I was creating doing art activities with them and um and uh yeah I'd go in every day and it was hilarious because in England you create or get all the junk off you know all the cardboard boxes and all the stuff that people that people um uh, you know throw away well it's pretty hard to get in Colombia because it's all recycled so I was right. like in the hostel collecting everything from everyone's like give me your plastic bottles do this you know and so you know the the most um, incredible thing though was was the the lack of manual dexterity because they didn't do any of that stuff that's not how they grew up so holding a paintbrush or a pencil to draw anything was quite a challenge so had to kind of it was kind of like organized chaos but I was used to that from the playground because you know (laughs) yeah it was it was a bit crazy some of the stuff that went on um yeah and for me though was was um quite eye-opening there was the way some of the the staff treated the kids and I wasn't very comfortable with with that and um so yeah I kind of said a few things about that but it was a bit a bit awkward because you know I wasn't I was I was this like western interloper type thing it was amazing the children were just unbelievable I've got some wonderful photos of them and so we'd yeah I'd just be there doing activities with them taking them out on going out on trips with them because they'd go out on trips occasionally and um, yeah, having lunch with them and doing all of that sort of stuff. So what what kind of stuff was going on that you were uncomfortable with? And also what was what was your reception like as somebody who was kind of coming in from the outside? So I was very, very aware that I am, you know, a Western person. Uh, the two women who ran the place were were very welcoming. It was a lukewarm welcome to start off with so I was very careful not to step on people's toes and I just said look this is what I this is what I can offer and I think because I could offer the arts and crafts it's not something that a lot of them were skilled in so the male was they were doing you know they were doing more things like just watch the football and things like that and um, I'd occasionally try and organize other games which was uh, uh, um, kind of a mixed uh, mixed success but you know that's the way it goes and and it was just um, the, the women were more um, the two women that I worked with they were more welcoming and accepting but there was one guy who I felt was a bit of a bully mm-hmm. for the young for the young lads and I would watch him and I'd be like I'm, I'm just not you know I'm not comfortable with this because I think it's not a nice way to treat these children treat these children you know it's kind of like there was a bit of a power that that sometimes that can happen with teachers it's that power the the um the power structure thing is is I'm you know I'm the boss and I never work like that with children so you know and and again it's Colombia it was another country so you know maybe they they did things differently there but um didn't sit well with me you're in you're immersed in this environment of of what sounds like a, a kind of um very different very challenging environment to be in 
Um, you're seeing things around you that are not things that you would generally see, people sniffing glue and, and mixing up the, uh, the leftovers for the cocaine. Can you kind of give us an idea of, I want to kind of get a visual representation of what that looks like. So when you're kind of walking walking around and, and you're immersed in that culture, what are you thinking and feeling and, and how how is that? What is What is that like? I think it's very, uh, it makes you recognise that what privilege we have over here, mm-hmm. actually also how much we do exploit other countries. In my perspective, we end up exploiting other countries. Huge differences between, and I found that very difficult, the huge differences between the wealth, because there was wealth in Cali, um, and and the poverty that people lived in. And, you know, I know that that is over here now as well. So um, it just made me want to work with these people, with children, and and because, because I think children don't have power in society. Um, and I'm very much still a belief of that, uh, having that belief over here as well, to work with children because they have such potential and they can teach us so much. And I find I learn a huge amount with working with children. So walking around in in the in Cali around that area, people just it's just it, it goes on and people walk past. That's mm-hmm. it's part of life. You kind of get into because I by the time that I've been in South America for, for quite a long time by then so I'd experienced quite a lot of it already um you you just go this is part of the way that things happen over here and I think you know also because I'd worked in an adventure playground over here I've worked with kids parents who are drug addicts and um alcoholics and so I've I kind of already had some experience of that just meet people where they are really meet people where they are and, and however they present themselves I also you know understand the background of all of that is no one chooses to live like that mm-hmm. it's um it's a way of of coping with whatever's happened to them in like their lives or if you've got no you know you've got uh you get into a poverty spiral that's what happens and there's no there's no support for, there's not much support shall I say in in places like in certain cities in in uh, Colombia because it's a different infrastructure so it was very shocking in a way that um, how segregated it was, because I worked with also in a school out just outside the city with girls who were at risk of, of sexual abuse. And it was a very lovely environment, a really lovely place, a really lovely school. But I had to go through some really, you know, on the micro, I'd go through some really posh areas. And you could see that juxtaposition of you'd see the big blocks of flats. And then just across the way, in some places, it was um, more like a favela. Well, not not uh, not like Brazil, but it, uh, yeah, just such a juxtaposition. And I think all that that did is just um, open my eyes to yeah. the way that the, in, the unfairness in the world, which I've always known. <laughs> yes, I've always known that, and that it made you know, I experienced it. I experienced it, and I think that that's a great value because it means that it's always there in my mind. Yeah, I I. I think those types of experiences are invaluable and they just kind of like trigger our curiosity and then our curiosity sort of triggers different elements that we might want to change about ourselves. And then as a reflection of that, maybe something bigger in the world as well might change as a result of that. You've been out there. Uh, did it just kind of come to a natural end or you'd always planned to leave at that point? Was there, how did it? you come to come back to the UK? Uh, well, it was, I was going to go 
the first, as I said, the first time I went for eight months, and then I came back, and I was like, I haven't, I haven't done with this. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I did stay to earn some money. I just kind of bedded back into the UK. I, I don't really know why I stayed for. Well, I think it's probably because of my mum. I stayed in the UK for for a good while, and then I decided, yeah, okay, I'm not. I've not done with South America. I haven't seen half of it because I travel so slowly. <laughs> this time I'm going to. Oh yeah, and I wanted to continue to learn Spanish. This time I'm going to start from the other end. And I just planned for go to go for a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did. It was just a decision that I will just go for a year because, uh, yeah, no, I, that was all. Just decided to go for a year, probably no longer. And then, um, and then, yeah, I just came. I just came back. Came out with going out with a bit of a blast at the end of uh, of being because Colombia was my last country again. And then again, I had to because I I loved it so much. I hadn't finished with it. I had to go and extend my visa. So I had to go through all the rigmarole of going to the um, the Department of uh, Immigration, uh, have my fingerprints taken and everything. And uh, oh wow, yeah, <laughs> and get I'll get all of the paperwork sorted out so I could stay there for another month. And I don't think as well because I was back in Colombia. Um, I never had a desire to really see a lot of Brazil because Brazil's Portuguese as well. I mean, I did go into Brazil a bit, but I'd done I had done as much as I need I wanted to at the time. South America so I had been to every other country except for doing doing as they say I hadn't hadn't seen Brazil properly but that that like would take a lifetime as well so yeah it was just it was just time for me to come back okay so when you've come back you come back with all of these experiences having met all of these people um inevitably I'm guessing got quite close to some of them because you're sort of fully embedded in the children's story and making sure they're okay in their lives And often, as we know, when we've been somewhere and we've come back into a very different culture, it's quite hard to hold on to all of those things that we learned or that we intended to kind of express more when we came back. So what did you manage to hold on to that was important for you to hold on to as a result of those experiences? And what did you find very quickly just went back to normal, as it were? Um, Probably going back to having all the things that I used to (laughs) Yeah. Well, I, I still have my house, you see, so I, I moved back into my house. Actually, didn't bother me was having stuff, actually, is buying stuff or anything like that. Um, having new things didn't bother me at all. Going back into um, connecting with my friends was lovely. And I think actually this time round, the second time, because I went years and years ago, I went um, for traveling for two years. And I think this time around, it's actually easier to connect back in with some of my friends than it was the first time. And I did think I was going to go abroad again, and I never did. Wow, okay. So I, I didn't. And, oh, yes, I think because um, I met someone as well, not so long after, I think. So, yeah, not so long afterwards, I had a, I had a quite a long-term relationship. So, yeah, and he wasn't into travelling. So uh, I just kind of settled back into living in the UK. So you mentioned that there was a point at which you were, you're very into your fitness, you're doing personal training, but there was a point at which, presumably, because you then added it in, you realized and recognized that the mind was an important part of this kind of whole that we were looking after. So was that a moment, a book, a person? What kind of helped you understand that that was something that you really wanted to get into as well? Well, I have a friend. Mm -hmm. (laughs) who I seem to have followed a bit well I'm not I've now continued on the journey and she hasn't 
and I, yeah, I have one particular friend whose thinking has always uh, been a little bit off the wall compared to most people. Well, most people is absolutely totally off the wall. Um, you know, the whole thing talking about aliens and things like that, stuff going on underneath Bristol Airport. Anyway, having an open mind, uh, she went and did uh, something called CETA DNA healing. So I went afterwards and did it. It was just a day, a weekend. And I remember sitting there and I kind of started to bring out stuff about my dad. I, I sat there and I said, God, you know, I was crying and everything. And, and uh, so I, I said, God, this is really hard. And the trainer said to me, it's as hard or as easy as you make it. And I just went, ka-ching. It's wow. like, you're absolutely right. I make these decisions. And then that kind of happened, came upon is like in, in personal training. I was like, I've got these really successful people, people who are high up in finance, my clients, and yet they, they're they great when I'm working with them, uh, and in university as well. They're great when I'm working with them, yet what is it that all that time when I'm not with them, because that's the key time of change, is to maintain and, and uh, to maintain it. They're unable to, to change the way that they eat. They're unable to do, to make those changes themselves. What is it? You know, the same person, but there's something deeper that's stopping them doing that. I can't do this with what I've got. What else is there? And my friend, she just done per- practitioner training and then an opportunity came. So I was on a mailing list to, to do it at reduced cost. And I was like, right, that's what I'm doing. I thought this, this I'm going to go and see what this this is all about. Um, again, I didn't really know that much. I've read that book ages and ages ago. But, and I've read a book about uh, the Anthony Robbins book as well in mm-hmm. that period of time, uh, years before. And just gone, oh, yes, that's quite interesting. And just put it down and just carried on in my life with, with my kids. So there's the mindset stuff going on there all the time or the understanding, because I'd also taught inc- um, quality, diversity, equality and diversity and inclusion. So there's a whole thing around beliefs there. I'd never made the real deep connections. It's like all these fragments of, of working with people and understanding people, not being really understanding it at the deepest level and so yeah then practitioner came along and I thought oh yeah that will that will add to what I what I do then I'll understand then I'll be able to help these people in a different way and is that how it turned out yes I sat in the car after the training because um, you go through when you train as a practitioner you go through all of the processes yourself so it's a really a great opportunity for your own personal transformation and kind of timeline therapy is I, I went back and did that. That's kind of like the icing on the cake because uh, that really does change your thinking inside uh, and heals loads of stuff. I came out of Prac and I sat there in the car coming back from Manchester and I looked I looked out my windscreen and I just went, the world does not feel the same anymore. And all the pieces of jigsaw, when I came home, all of the pieces of my jigsaw of my life just went, just like, obvious. It's obvious. This is the, this is the, the bit that, glues everything together because it's so simple and it's so practical so yes it was um it was quite a revelation for me yeah and it's quite a revelation and having this thing in front of your face in some ways and you don't even you know you don't even make those connections yes exactly that exactly that and for me that is pivotal to this kind of like rebirthing process because you we can have like quite a short labor or we can have like a really long protracted labor 
And all of the kind of experiences that we have during that labor period and the contractions are going where you're having new experiences, you're meeting new people, your mind's being opened, you're starting to question. And then slowly, like you said, all of those pieces of the puzzle that have been put in place over years, maybe, are suddenly kind of coming together in a way that you can see them fully for the first time. And you're like, ah, I I see now how all of the things that have been happening in my life can come together to create something really powerful. And that moment for me, in the metaphor that I use with this whole rebirth thing, is the moment where you are suddenly kind of becoming your own person again. Like you've brought all of those things together and that is the you, the new whole that's coming together, that's being birthed out. And, and the whole of the labor process has kind of got you there and the gestation period as well when you're in the womb, if you like. Bring us up to the present day then. So we've kind of had this beautiful experience that you've described to us and all of these amazing things that have kind of happened. And then you've brought it all together with understanding that the physical and the mindset and all of the parts of you have to come together and, and have a holistic viewpoint over change. So you've done the experiences yourself. You've gone through all the processes of NLP and timeline therapy. And then you're out in the world. And did you intend to kind of use that with your clients? Or was that something that you were like, okay, now I see a way in which I can kind of offer everything together? Well, at the time I was also, I was was being, I was a personal trainer and I was also kind of organizing, running training for an organization that, offers childcare it's an umbrella organization because I will always have something to do with play work and children because I'm utterly passionate about that um so any play work training I will deliver it because <laughs> I I just think it's such a valuable job but in that aspect as I bring I brought started bringing that into my training with play workers then also it came to the point where I realized I can't work in an organization anymore it wasn't enough it was too restricting in terms of my mindset. So there's a thinking we we, we talk about levels of complexity, being able to hold complexity in mind in NLP. And when you get to a certain level, you kind of can be a boss and you can be a part of a team. They got to the point where it's like, I can't, it, this is not innate. I'm not able to lead enough in the way that I want to. I'm not, I don't have, it's not moving fast enough for me. And I've always been quite on. I have been quite I'm quite an impatient person in terms of change. And I've got to the point where I, okay, I accept that change has to take place slowly. And then I'm unconscious, I'm underneath it, I'm going, why? <laughs> it's a <laughs> yeah. mindset, actually. <laughs> and when I learned NLP, I was like, even more. Yes. <laughs> Doesn't that take a long time? It's a mindset. Anyway, so there came a point where I was like, actually, I can't, I, I, or oh, because I've done, trained as a practitioner, then I trained as a master practitioner. And then because I was a trainer already, anyway, I delivered training in other things and I love delivering training. I thought, well, might as well become a trainer as well. And I still had some money. So I invested, I did invest, you know, uh, invest considerably in that. And after that, yeah, by the time I was trained, I was like, can't work for anyone else anymore. Have to start my, have to start a business. And so I did start a business um, as a trainer. I. I still did some personal training. I do have a little bit because I love, I still keep up to date with all 
the physical stuff because I'm really into body mind. You know, NLP is body mind. Um, though most people think a lot is to do with here, it's not. And so, yeah, I love to do the whole shebang. It's about focus as well, because you know, and you're probably in your business, you've got to focus. <laughs> and mm -hmm. when I've got a head that's going like this all over the place, you know, um, my mind works. Everything for me is connected. It is a case of bring myself back down to earth and focusing, so people are clear about what actually I do. I do. Yeah. Um, so I say I'm a, I'm a trainer of NLP primarily. So yes, it was a had to start a business. There was no there was no question about it. Yeah. Yes, I totally understand that. I think I would be completely unemployable now anyway. <laughs> but uh, it's it's been amazing hearing your story, Fenella, and I would actually really love to talk to you for hours about it because I would love to know a, a huge amount more about the children that you worked with and 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 how that was um, and how that's helped them as well. Do you stay in touch with any of them? Uh, no, I'm I'm not in touch with the children. I'm still in touch with the woman, one of the women that I worked with in in the um, uh, the, the community that's been taken off the rubbish dump. So we're still in touch. Yes. Amazing. As for the children, it's uh, not so easy to stay in touch with them. But, you know, it's still in the back of my mind to go back there and then bump into one of them. Because I do that with the kids that I used to work with in the playground over here. You bump into them and they're all adults now and they go, right, Flo? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember you when I worked with you in the playground and I'm like, over you. Oh yeah, they yes, yeah, they changed so much over that period. Yeah. Don't they? So. Okay. Um, so one question that I like to ask people at the end is um to take you back to the point at which we started. So um and then ask you what it would be that you would like to say from today's self to your past self who was experiencing the death of her brothers and her father. And is there something that you would like to leave her with? Trust, trust. I think also trust yourself, trust the universe, believe that everything will be okay because it will be because we create our reality. That is a lovely place to finish. Thank you so much, Fenella. Thank you so much for telling us your story. And we will link people into the ways to work with you and how to find out more about you. Um, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me, Nova. Lovely to meet you. You're very welcome. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not download the Womb app? It's going to help you to understand what a rebirth is and how to have one for yourself. Join in the chat rooms, download the materials and programs and get monthly coaching and monthly networking, all for the price of $6.99 a month. Download now in the App Store or Google Play Store.